Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 60, January 2023. Whistled Speech, a conversation with Julien Meyer. Hello, Paul Meyer here. Happy New Year. Just a reminder, the holiday sale of my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen has a few more days to run through January 5th. Available only through my website, paulmeyer.com. Now, our quiz. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. But yeah, geocaching, we... Um, when did we start that? It was about 2012, something like that. And the, the, whole, the whole point of that, to explain to you again, was we found it great because it brought you to places you would never have thought of. And even if you may you may know an area really well, other people may know bits and bobs you don't. If you guessed Ireland, well done. If you narrowed it down to Northern Ireland or even Belfast, very well done indeed. It was Ideas Northern Ireland 8, contributed by Idea Senior Editor Derek McNish at Michigan State University. Thanks again, David. The subject, born in Belfast in 1994, was 25 at the time of the recording. For the whole recording, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and drill down to Northern Ireland. That's under Europe, of course. Now, this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? I don't know. Your, your parents have this feeling that even if you are 60, your parents, if they are alive anyway, you are still a child for them. You never grow up. You are always a child. And they would say, oh, my child and my child, and you are always a child. Get the answer next time. My guest today is Julien Meyer, linguist and acoustician. He's a professor at the European Institutes for Advanced Study at the University of Lyon, France. So welcome, Julien. Happy New Year. Bonne année. Let's start with an audio clip. A very mysterious and intriguing sound. So what on earth are we hearing, Julien? Is this bird song? What on earth is it that we're listening to? What we're listening to is called whistle speech. It's simply speaking while whistling. It's very useful for speaking in the distance in, uh, in natural environments because the whistle is something that is a kind of sound that propagates well uh, mm. outdoors. So what we heard was somebody articulating a sentence. Here it was English. The sentence was going something like that. If you say, how are you, you can whisper it, which is yeah. another modality of speech, Yes. which would go, how are you? And if you blow the whisper even more without using the vocal cords, even for pressuring the sound, you would do, and then if you blow more doing a bit of the whistle, you, you would go to whistle speech, which is, so you really try to pronounce 
the consonants and the vowels, the words, <gasps> while whistling. That's amazing. So I played that clip without the spoken English translation. So I'm going to play that now with the translation that you provided. Nice to meet you. How do you do? Happy birthday to you. Do you understand the whistle? So should we call it speech or, or is it more like Morse code? It's, it's actually whistled English, right? Does it deserve the term speech? Yes, exactly. It's a modality of speech, like you have whispered speech, you have shouted speech, you have uh, sung speech, and you can also whistle speech. It's still speech, but transformed in its acoustical form. You say exactly the same things, and you just transform the filter of your voice huh. to adapt to a different kind of sound, which is quite useful for going far in uh, natural environments. In mountainous terrain, right? With shepherds. Mountainous, yes. Yeah. Or in the forest also when you have a lot of leaves and trunks. I've heard it referred to as whistled language, but it's really not a language so much as a different modality of our own speech. Whistle language is also correct, but it's less clear if you if you use whistle language but you, because you could think that it's another language. And it's not your own spoken language that you transform into a different modality. So that's why I prefer to use whistle speech, because it's true that you could also invent a parallel language with different codes that yes. would be whistled. I understand. So it's speech rather than language, but in some cases we could imagine a whistled language also. Okay, good. Explain the phenomenon of whistled speech. You say in that article in Noble magazine, where I found those clips, that whistled mm -hmm. speech has arisen in at least 80 languages around the world. Where, why, when, uh, how did that happen? I mean, I'm so intrigued. It's a modality of speech that is found mostly in some places where people need it as a tool to complement ordinary speech, to speak in the distance and to speak uh, from far, uh, to, to communicate important things that you couldn't communicate rapidly. So to attract attention in a situation of danger, to inform somebody on the other side of the valley that you will be coming in the afternoon. In some situations, it's very useful as a tool. If you look all around the world, this phenomenon has been found in around 80 languages so far. And these languages are all over the world in all the inhabited continents. It's not a phenomenon that is limited by a certain structure of language. No, it adapts to any kind of structure. You find it mostly linked to two types of environments, which are mountainous topography and um, very dense forests, hmm. which was also chosen by many animals as a distant uh, system, Yes, like many birds, but also many 
many monkeys or the mammals use it as a sound that helps to go far. Yes. And so uh, humans also, and uh, when they needed to really use it for complex uh, information, then they adapted it uh, to their local language. In mountains, for example, you may want to communicate to a person that you see on the other side of the ballet. Sometimes this person is from the same village, but if you want to go to inform him of something, you would need to take either a car now, but even with a car, it would take you uh, more than half an hour to go hmm. around the valley and uh, to, to reach his house. With whistling, you would go very rapidly. You, you would reach him if it's, I don't know, 500 meters, you would reach him in uh, less than one second. Yes. Yes. In dense forests, you have trees all around and uh, leaves, and these uh, reflect the sounds that are the less hindered by these kind of uh, obstacles are the very low frequencies, or there is also a frequency window between one and three kilohertz of frequency. How much further can we communicate with whistling than with ordinary speech or shouting even? In places where it has developed in the mountains, people can reach uh, records of uh, at least two or three kilometers. And uh, it's quite common to communicate if you are on a cliff and somebody else is uh, down in the valley, you can really reach very long distances yeah, and have a conversation. So if you are in the mountain, it could be either activities of looking uh, after the cattle, shepherding, uh, goat herding, Yes. So it's very common in populations who were making a living out of these kinds of activities. It might be also in mountains linked to hill agriculture. In many places, you have that in Yunnan, in the south of China, you know, where it's very well known. Uh, you, you, you may have in mind these photos of terrace agriculture. I don't know if you say that in English. Terraced agriculture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in terraced agriculture, it's very useful to communicate this way because you, you can see all the fields from far. And so uh, you, you may want to organize the work uh, in the fields. And uh, whistling is very useful for that. It's, it, it's quite common in Turkey, you know, uh, in the place where whistle speech is still practiced. It's uh, near a village called Kushkoy, near the Black Sea. So you're a linguist, you're an acoustician. What have you learned about the history of human speech as we more generally know it, uh, produced with the, the larynx and so forth, and the vocal cords? What, what have you learned about the history of human speech in that form from examining whistled speech? It's a very interesting tool to reflect on that, uh, on that topic because many theories of the origin of speech speak about uh, the necessity to communicate in the distance as a, a reason why human beings wanted to communicate uh, while uh, hunting or while uh, and, and communicate complex information linked to uh, the directions where to go, the, the situation, uh, the danger, how the game was behaving. For example, in the situations where whistle speech is used for hunting, which is quite common in the forest, for example, 
it corresponds exactly to what is described by people who have reflected on the origin of uh, human communication with sound. Whistling is perhaps the most powerful sound you can produce with a human mouth. So it's very interesting to reflect on that. We can learn quite a bit about the history of human speech by pondering those questions, right? It could be a path. Uh, it could have been a path in the in the past of development of the control of the larynx. So it's interesting just to think about that, even if, you know, we don't really know what happened, but it's a, another path of reflection that has been not very much exploited. Interesting. Among those 80 languages that uh, developed a need for whistled speech, are there any instances of whistled English or French? I know whistled uh, Occitan in the south of France, in the Pyrenees, in a small village called As. Until 1998, some people knew how to whistle their language, so it was Occitan, yes. uh, a language which is still alive in the south of France, but it's a local language. French is from the same family as Occitan. Some people have revived this practice. There is an association which is teaching back how to whistle Occitan because Occitan is taught at school because it was a language which was losing vitality among the, the youth. The professors at school in this region, in, uh, in the, especially in the Valley of Osso, uh, in the south of France, near the city of Pau, the professors had the idea to put whistle speech in the Occitan course. It's like a game in, because you have to guess a little bit from the little sounds you hear. The voice is much more complex than the whistle, and the voice gives you more clues to understand a word. But the whistle still have enough clues for you to guess. So it's a kind of game also to try to reconstruct a sentence or a word from a whistle. Hmm. Yes. Your brain is very quick when it is trained to jump on the few information it has. Yes, yes. That's making me think of redundancy in spoken language. I can make you understand very easily. I, I can replace every single vowel in my speech with the same vowel, and you will still understand me. I'm using only one vowel, but because of other information, you can still understand what I'm saying. So we use a lot more information in speech than is actually necessary for understanding. And the examination of whistled speech obviously reminds us even more forcefully that it's possible to understand with very, very little information, right? Yes, exactly. In the courses I give to students, I used to say that the voice is very polyvalent in uh, its resistance to noise to conditions of listening, because it gives you a lot, a lot of different clues to what the sounds are and how they connect together yeah. to make a word. To make the meaning, yes. You mentioned the Occitan in the yeah. south of France as a place where whistling is being revived a little bit. Uh, Silbo uh, in the Canary Islands is where I first came across whistled speech, and there it's on the curriculum. You have to learn Silbo, the whistled language throughout the Canary Islands, I believe. So it's quite thriving and vigorously protected 
both locally and at international levels. What is very interesting about the whistled Spanish in the Canary Islands is that first the local people, because it was uh, the, this practice was inherited from another language than Spanish. It was inherited from the language that was spoken before the colonization. We think that they were Berber languages spoken there. Yes. These Berber languages could be whistled. They were whistled in several islands, probably in different dialects or different languages. We don't really know exactly, but we know that they were whistled before and that when acculturation came with the colonization, local people, because they were still living as shepherds in the countryside, they still needed this kind of practice to communicate from far because there were no phone in the 15th and 16th century. There were no... Uh, no cars at this time. So it was a very useful tool that they kept in Spanish. Yes. So it's one of the kind of the few remnant practices of the language of before that survived in Spanish. So the local people there are very proud of this kind of practice. And one of the islands decided to promote it also at school. After a long work of some elders who in reality realized that they had that richness because some of them had left during the Franco time, had left the country. And when they came back, you know, when you, sometime when you leave and you come back, you realize that there are some richness that you didn't see when you were living there. Yes. So some of them who had left realized that this was not unique, but this was rare. Yes. And so... They they decided that they should try to find a way to revive that. And so promoting teaching was one of their solutions. Whistled speech would certainly have predated the invention of the alphabet. Oh, yes, because uh, you have it in several places where there is no writing. You don't need an alphabet to use whistled speech. It's just communicating your language You pointed out in one of your works that Mandarin or any other tonal language is difficult to convert to a whistled variety, difficult to transpose. So um, just to make it clear to our listeners, a tonal language is one in which the melody, just as much as the consonants and vowels, can determine the meaning. So, for instance, the Chinese word ma uh, said one way means mother and said another way means horse. So can you demonstrate that phenomenon and point out why a tonal language would make the use of whistled speech complicated? Uh, Yes, I'm not really good at uh, speaking a tonal language, but uh, I could just demonstrate, for example, on the two examples, you said ma and ma. If these two sounds are two different words, when they are whistled in a tonal language, people wouldn't imitate, wouldn't really copy the oral part, which is the consonant and the vowels, but they would more imitate the melody of the tone, of the pitch of the voice. Uh-huh. And so one word would be ma, would be and the other one would be ma, and would be So they are very different when they are whistles, because you could copy only one part of the that is encoded in the voice, 
which is uh, not the quality of the vowel and the consonant, but the pitch of the voice, which is its melody. Yes, yes. So the majority of the languages of the world, we estimate around 70% of the languages of the world are tonal. When a language is tonal, we have noticed in research that whistle speech directly switches to imitating the melody of the word. I'm going to play another clip now. This is in Spanish. So this is a dialogue between two men several hundred yards from each other. Credit goes to the world whistles, Le Monde Siffle. It's difficult to appreciate that it's two men at a great distance from each other, but they're holding a very complex conversation, greeting mm -hmm. each other by name, then open your backpack and take out anything you like. Okay, I'm opening my backpack and taking out a bottle of water. So... It, it suggests that almost anything you want to say in regular speech, you could whistle. In this example, it's very interesting because it was not a predetermined dialogue. These are two Spanish whistlers who are professors in, uh, in an association who, which teaches whistling in the Canary Islands. And I invited them in the mountains in the Alps in France to meet some uh, shepherds from here because uh, they wanted to see this practice because it could be useful even for shepherds here because uh, the, the wolf is coming back in the, in the Alps mm. and uh, shepherds need more to communicate and to work again as in the past with more people in the same place. So they have more occasions to communicate now and they need it more than during the last hundred years. And that's why, uh, well, it was a, it was a, sh a show or a demonstration show made for professionals. What is interesting is that you, you see how it's used really in an unexpected uh, context and dialogues. The first one says, oh, José Luis, so, so he calls José Luis, or oye, José Luis, oye is, so he pronounces, hey, oh, José Luis. And then the other answers, okay, I hear you, bueno. So he says bueno because that's the kind of conventions of saying, okay, I hear you, bueno, good. And because you articulate bueno like this and while whistling. And then they go on with a conversation and when they don't understand what the other said, as when you shout sometimes in the distance, you don't understand exactly what has been said, you can ask to repeat. But before asking to repeat, the whistlers in the Canary Islands have this custom to say what they understood. So 
so they have a kind of discourse strategy to explain what they understood. So they repeat the sentence until where they didn't understand. So one of them says, oh, can you take something from your bag? But usually when you ask something from a bag, you, you ask something concrete. You say, oh, could you take, could you take uh, a sandwich in your bag or something like that? But in this case, the first one said, can you take something? And the possibility was open. So the other one was not sure. So he said, I understood you told me to take something, but what? And the other one said, qualquer cosita. Anything, any little thing you have in your bag was the answer. And so the first one who was asking said, cualquier cosita, and whistling would be, cosita. And so the other one has to decide because it was what the the local people said to the first one, tell him to take anything. It was like a test. Yes, by the local shepherds who really wanted to see if they could understand each other in this kind of an unexpected situation. Yes. And so the other, the other one said, okay, I have a bottle of water. Tengo una botella de agua. Tengo would be tengo. I really articulate ta, tang, tang, like and then go. Even if you are not training that, when I Explain it like this, syllable by syllable. You can recognize more or less that the O is a low sound and it corresponds to something that we already have in the voice. O is charged with the low frequencies. And the whistling is just imitating that. And the R or the A or the E are higher. The E is the highest. So it's E, E, O. Yeah, in this example, it goes on like this in the discussion and uh, it shows that uh, you really can communicate complex things. Even if you have a lesser rate of success in understanding sentences, if you use this kind of communication, correcting the other one and asking questions, finally, you would uh, reach to the information that uh, you wanted to pass. For example, they are using cosita instead of cosa because cosita is a bit longer. And so it's better to pass information to use a bit longer uh, words. So cosita is a small thing and uh, cosa is a thing. Mm -hmm. Using cosita would help the listener to be sure that it's cosita and not, uh, uh, because cosa you can mix up, well, you you could confound it with, uh, I don't know, casa. You could yes. confound it with uh, kada. You could confound it with other things. Yes, yes, yes. You've studied whistled speech in the Amazonian rainforest too, right, Julian? Uh, yes. You spent many years in Brazil, I believe. Yes, I, I spent five years in uh, Brazil studying uh, directly there in the Museo Goldi in the linguistics department. I still collaborate with them now from France, where I'm now. Even now, I continue to work also in uh, French Guiana, and I work with uh, local people there who also use whistle speech, mm. the Oyapok River. Yes. 
So the whistled speech in South America is under threat. I'm sure we can guess why De degradation of environments and abandonment of hunting and subsistence farming and so forth. And and we have cell phones, I suppose, right? But yes, but uh, just like here in the mountains, you know, cell phones, sometimes they are very useful, but also... No cell phone service. Yes. So because of that, uh, whistle speech is still used in uh, the most remote places. And it's also very nice while hunting or fishing because when you speak, your voice is so characteristic of a human that uh, animals will recognize that the human is here. But when you whistle, as many other animals use whistling, if you don't whistle too heavy and too strong, then uh, the animals around won't be afraid and they even won't notice during a while that there is a human there speaking. How very, very interesting. It uh, brings humans into the animal kingdom much more clearly than anything else I've heard. I'm going to play another clip. This is recorded speech. I'm putting speech in quotation marks. This is something you recorded uttered by flutes, musical bows and clarinets in the rainforest too. So let me play that clip and then you can talk about it. So I have no idea what I was listening to there. So what's going on here? So in this sound extract, we hear first a song that is played with instruments. And uh, you hear it with people shouting around because people are dancing also with this song, which is played by instrument. Then you hear the same song, only the refrain, like... Uh, which is played by the same instruments, but in isolation, without the context of playing for an event. And then you hear the same uh, refrain, but uh, spoken. And the guy says, Ambozara Pagata. So he sings a little bit because it's a song. And Ambozara Pagata. It's exactly what was spoken before, but by an instrument. So as you can whistle, and these people who are the Gavion of Rondonia in the, near the border uh, with uh, Bolivia, between uh, Brazil and Bolivia, this region, which is called Rondonia in Brazil, is an Amazonian region. And uh, it's uh, a place where the people still know how to use instruments, either to speak or to sing, because in reality, they imitate sung speech. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is that because it's a tonal language, we can follow the rhythm and follow also the melody and see that the rules of linguistics that are inside the song are also deciding of the melody of the song. So it means that the song is not only made for pure music, as we would understand it, but it's made by the rules of the linguistics that you have inside the language, uh, the linguistics of the lyrics. So that's why people, local people say that these instruments are, are speaking, mm. because when you listen to the song, 
you can recognize the words from the sound. But uh, what is also very original here is that this kind of instrument is very typical of the Amazon. It's a bamboo instrument. And you hear different sounds, different notes. You have three different notes here. And it means you have three different bamboo clarinets. It's kind of a clarinet because you have a bamboo with inside a vibrating... Um, a reed. Yes. And you have three different uh, vibrating reeds in three different bamboo flutes. It's not the same player that plays each of the, uh, the, the, the three instruments. You have one player for each of the three uh, bamboo flutes. And it means that each time you hear sound, the next one would be played by, by another person. And uh, what is interesting is that uh, then it's, a, it's an ensemble. It's an instrument made of an ensemble of three persons who are coordinating to make sentences. So it's a kind of uh, game also. Yes. Uh, and this instrument is also played while dancing in the shape of a snake, I would say, yes. more or less. And the three players are, we would say, more or less the head of the snake, the three first dancers. And they sing songs either depicting the history of the people or uh, depicting uh, the environment. So you have very, it's, a, it's kind of poetry also. You have some uh, lyrics which tell that there are some beautiful birds flying over the pineapple uh, fields. And you have another song which is uh, telling the story of uh, when the first colonizers came. So it's a, it's a more uh, uh, fighting uh, song telling that, well, the white people, the white people are coming, but we will fight back. Through the different lyrics and the different songs, you can also have uh, an understanding of the, some aspects of the history or the myths or, or the environment or the poetry of, of these people. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for that explanation. Fills me with great respect for those cultures. You're clearly doing such important work with profound implications across cultures and across disciplines. Julien, Meir, thank you so much for joining me today on In a Manner of Speaking. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Julien Meir. To learn more about him and Whistled Speech, and for free extra content found only on my website, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking, from the Other Services tab on the menu bar and click on episode number 60. There you'll find I've embedded several videos demonstrating whistled speech. So you'll be able to watch whistled speech as well as hear it. I took some of the audio clips used in today's episode from YouTube and others from Knowable magazine, all under the copyright doctrine of fair use. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul My Dialect Services on Facebook. Join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs> <laughs>